You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. In her speech to the 2008 Republican National Convention, Sarah Palin quoted a writer. She didn't name a writer. She just quoted the writer. She said, a writer observed, we grow good people in our small towns with honesty, sincerity, and dignity. And she went on to say that people in these small towns love their country in good times and bad. They're always proud of America and that she herself had lived all of her life in a small town. It came out later who the writer was that Sarah Palin was quoting at that moment. He was a guy named Westbrook Pegler. And he was a fascist. He was an anti-Semite. He was a racist in the 1950s and 60s. And in 1965, this fascist writer, Westbrook Pegler, called for the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, saying that if Kennedy ran for president, Robert F. Kennedy, which he did do, some white patriot of the southern tier will splatter his spoonful of brains in public premises before the snow flies. Robert F. Kennedy was, of course, later assassinated during his campaign for the president after winning the California primary. And that's the dude Sarah Palin quoted praising small towns and the people who grow there. Sarah Palin's comments uh, her invoking this fascist leapt to mind somehow last week when I was watching the Republicans debate from South Carolina particularly leapt to mind when I was watching Ted Cruz attempt to defend his indefensible comments about New York City. Ted Cruz slammed Donald Trump by accusing him of having what Cruz called New York values. One of the moderators of the debate from Fox News, Fox News, of course, is based in fucking New York City. One of the moderators from Fox News asked Ted Cruz to explain what he meant by New York values. Senator Cruz, you suggested Mr. Trump, quote, embodies New York values. Could you explain what you mean by that? You know, I think most people know exactly what New York values are. I am from New York. I what, 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 you're from New York, so yeah. you might not. But I promise you in the state of South Carolina, they do. Cruz never really got around to unpacking what he meant exactly by New York values. But a commenter on my blog, he unpacked for us exactly what Cruz meant. Cruz meant allowing gays, atheists, blacks, Asians, Catholics, Spanish speakers, unwed sex-having women, and Muslims to exist and go about their lives largely unharassed by Jesus-y assholes like Ted Cruz. Here's what happened next at the debate. Donald Trump jumped in. And this was an awkward moment for those of us hate watching the Republican debates at home. Here's Donald Trump responding to Ted Cruz. So conservatives actually do come out of Manhattan, including William F. Buckley and others, just so you understand. And just so if I could, because he insulted a lot of people, I've had more calls on that statement that Ted made. New York is a great place. It's got great people. It's got loving people, wonderful people. When the World Trade Center came down, I saw something that no place on earth could have handled more beautifully, more humanely than New York. You had two 100...
You had two 110-story buildings come crashing down. I saw them come down. Thousands of people killed. And the cleanup started the next day, and it was the most horrific cleanup probably in the history of doing this and in construction. I was down there, and I've never seen anything like it. And the people in New York fought and fought and fought, and we saw more death and even the smell of death. Nobody understood it. And it was with us for months, the smell, the air. And we rebuilt downtown Manhattan. And everybody in the world watched, and everybody in the world loved New York and loved New Yorkers. And I have to tell you, that was a very insulting statement that Ted made. What was awkward about that, of course, was those of us out there, liberals and progressives, who are hate-watching the Republican debates, suddenly found ourselves in the awkward position of cheering for Donald Trump. It was wonderful at a Republican debate to hear someone from a big city come to the defense of that big city. Republicans have been running against the cities for decades. Ted Cruz today attacking New York values, Pat Buchanan, George H.W. Bush decades ago attacking quote-unquote San Francisco values. And we all know what they meant by that and still mean by that. They mean sodomites. They mean gay people getting to be who they are and live openly. San Francisco Valley. It's terrifying, isn't it? San Francisco values. Imagine a city where people can be who they are, do their own thing, and leave you the fuck alone. And they will do you the same favor of allowing you to be whoever the fuck you are and also leaving you the fuck alone. Those are big city values. 80% of Americans live in urban areas. You would think Republicans wouldn't get much traction running against the cities running against the New Yorks and the Chicagos and the San Franciscos and the Atlantas and the Dallases and the New Orleanses. But they do year after year. They run against the cities. They attack the cities. And I don't understand. Really, I don't understand how it is that the party of 20% of America, the party of the percentage of Americans who do not live in urban areas – manages somehow to win statewide elections, manages somehow to have majorities in Congress and the Senate. And the only explanation is while the Republicans are the party of rural America and running against the cities, clearly articulating an anti-urban agenda, the Democrats aren't running for the cities. The Democrats are not articulating a pro-urbanist agenda. The Democrats aren't turning out voters in the cities in midterms, in local elections, because the Democrats, they don't come to the defense of cities. They don't come to the defense of New York values, Chicago values, San Francisco values, Portland values, urbanist values, which tend to be just a bit communitarian with a whiff of socialism about them. Democrats will not come to their defense. And so people in the cities don't turn out to vote in large numbers. And if you've ever looked at an electoral map, broken up precinct by precinct, you know there's no such thing as a blue state. There are only red states with big blue dots. You need voters in cities to flip a state, to win a governor's race, to win a Senate race, to scoop up the votes of the Electoral College in that city and win the White House. You need urban voters pouring into the voting booths. And you've got Republicans throwing up barriers to people in cities and people of color and young people voting all the while attacking New York values, San Francisco values, the Chicago machine and everything else. And you've got Democrats 
not rallying the 80% of Americans who live in the cities by not coming to the defense of cities, by not having a pro-urbanist agenda. And I think Democrats don't come to the defense of cities because they're afraid of losing the votes out there in red and rural America that they have already lost, that are gone. Anyway, the GOP debate that we all hate watched last week, it was fun and it was bracing and it was disappointing actually. Not bracing. It was disappointing to finally hear a national politician and I hate having to describe Donald Trump as a national politician, bracing to finally hear inspiring a national politician come to the defense of the values of people who live in a big city. Of course, a lot of the people who live in those big cities are immigrants, many of them illegal immigrants. Some of those lovely, loving people who live in New York are people that Donald Trump would like to throw out of New York or like to have prevented from ever coming to New York in the first place. So there's that too. But I cheered when Donald Trump said that. There was something else that made me cheer last Thursday night too, something I also thought I would never hear a politician, a particular Republican politician, say from the stage of a Republican debate. Here's Rick Santorum at the undercard, the kids' table debate that took place before the main event last Thursday night. You'll never guess what Rick Santorum told viewers at home to do. Go Google Rick Santorum and Hillary yeah, Clinton. Yeah, that was Rick Santorum telling viewers to Google Rick Santorum. Twitter exploded after he did that. My Twitter, my feed exploded. I was getting calls from reporters at the Wall Street Journal asking me for comment. So I guess you can say we've seen everything now in this Republican contest. We have seen a Republican come to the defense of big city values, and we have seen Rick Santorum ask people to Google Rick Santorum. Now your calls. Hey, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old female. I'm straight, and I'm in a committed relationship. I've been thinking lately about a threesome with um, um, two males, my boyfriend and another male, and I'm trying to figure out what it would look like so that it wasn't this demeaning, aggressive kind of sex. Like, how does that work? Presumably, you managed to have sex with your boyfriend that is neither demeaning nor aggressive. So you have mastered the art of heterosexual intercourse, of you as the woman in the room being penetrated by him, the man, without aggression or degradation and without the kind of sometimes symbolic baggage that people attach to who's doing the penetrating and who's being penetrated and what that erotic script might look like for a lot of guys, right? Some guys like that to be kind of aggressive and domineering and controlling and some women really get off on that, but you don't. Demeaning, degrading, aggressive, not your thing and you've managed to apparently stick that mount, not that dismount, that mount with the guy you're with now who you're thinking about having a three-way with, with him and another dude. If you can do that, if you can have kick-ass heterosexual sex that you really enjoy with this one guy, one guy at a time, you can have kick-ass heterosexual sex that you really enjoy without any degradation, with nothing demeaning going on, nothing too aggressive or aggressive at all going on with two guys. You just have to be very clear about what your expectations are, what your limits are, uh, and what you're signing up for. So put it out there. I would like to have a three-way with two guys. You say this to the third that you're inviting in. Here's how we have sex. This is the kind of sex that I enjoy. If your boyfriend isn't bi, it might give you an added level of control if you find another guy for this three-way who also isn't bi. Because then if you remove yourself from the room, the sex collapses. 
It's not like if things get aggressive and demeaning and weird and you leave, they can just fuck each other. If the sex gets uncomfortable and you leave, it's over and done. And you should make it very explicit that that is what is going to happen if you are uncomfortable. You are going to get up and walk out of the room with your pussy and it's over. And if they don't want it to be over, they're going to be very attentive and careful and take things slow and take baby steps with whatever moves they have that might be potentially for some perceived as mildly aggressive. And you guys should keep talking throughout the three-way. And one thing to establish before a three-way always with a new partner or the first three-way ever that you might have is timeouts that you can call a break. If something's going on, some people are really reluctant to call for a break because they feel like they're going to ruin the mood, that they're going to end it, that calling for a break is essentially going to pull the plug and scare the erections away and dry everybody up and it's over. And what you should say is, you know, we need to be able to communicate. And if something's happening that makes me uncomfortable or you uncomfortable or you uncomfortable, anybody can call a brief timeout and we can chit-chat about it. And you should be able to chit-chat during – you should be able to have kind of a sexual dialogue going on and every once in a while overlay another dialogue around what you're doing, how you're feeling, everybody okay. You should be able to check in without checking out. You don't have to stop the sex to check in. You can keep rolling and going and briefly – Make sure everyone's still on the same page. Everybody's still having fun. But establish before it goes down, before you go down or they go down or whatever goes down, that if you're feeling uncomfortable, there's one of two things that are going to happen. If you're really feeling uncomfortable, you're going to pull the pussy. You're going to pull the plug and it's over. But if you're just mildly feeling uncomfortable, you're going to call for a timeout and you guys are just going to lay there naked or lay there on a heap in the couch, half-dressed, and have a quick chat about what was making you feel uncomfortable or what wasn't working. And they're empowered to say the same because guess what? Dudes can feel uncomfortable in a three-way too, not just women. And I say this as somebody who's had three-ways with dudes. It happens to us too. We're not just testosterone-soaked dick monsters, although we are those also. Hi, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old gay male. Uh, and my question is about fetishes and kinks. Uh, as long as I can remember, I've been enamored with guys that are older than I am. Specifically, I love it when they call me boy or tell me I'm a good boy or, or you know, that kind of a thing. Um, and it would go as far as, like, I can't come until my partner will say, you know, come for me, be a good boy and come for me or something like that. Uh, so what I'm asking is, how does one go about finding people who might be into a more in-depth role play of like father, son, incest, kink. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. It's Dan Savage. How are you, boy? Oh, hi, Dan. Wow. <laughs> I'm doing well. Good. I hope me calling you boy didn't give you an erection in a public place that's embarrassing or inconvenient. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at work yet. <laughs> It's not just the magic word. Someone just can't call you boy and you're like, swing, right? No, no, no. It's 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 kind of like, you know, uh, coming and getting fucked. It's, it's tied to that for okay, some I, reason. I had a question yeah. for you. Like the daddy boy thing is pretty well established in gay land. Like there are a lot of, you know, older guys who think of themselves as daddies and there are younger guys who are into them who will call themselves boy. But it's really divorced from the whole actual – biological or adoptive father-son thing, that it's not an incest thing. It's kind of the father figure thing, the paternal, older, wiser, more domineering dude 
and some submissiveness and erotic degradation, right? That's what that's about. And sometimes you see totally. the, the religious right freaks out. They like point to daddy boy porn or daddy boy uh, dirty talk uh, and furiously wank to it as they point to it on their websites to say, ah, evidence of the depravity of the gay male community. Because look, they're eroticizing and promoting incest and pedophilia. And it's just, it's just bullshit. It's just like Ronald Reagan called Nancy mommy for some reason, right? <laughs> That some part of their relationship was tied into the mother figure as an erotic figure, as a sensual figure, but divorced from the actual mother-son shit, hopefully in Ronald Reagan's relationship. I don't – I have to we – okay, we have to get off Ronald Reagan – off Ronald Reagan's dick here. We are, we are backing away. We are setting it down and slowly backing away from Ronald Reagan's dick. But the way you ask the question, I'm just – I'm curious. When you say – you're looking. You're curious how you find someone who's into more in-depth role play of father's son. Are you saying that part of what you're looking for is somebody who's into actual, explicit incest role play? Totally, totally. Okay, like well, uh, you know, that I'm coming or dad comes home. I'm doing my homework. Um, mm-hmm. He decides to have like a. This is really cheesy, but decides to have like the talk kind of a thing and then i get curious and i'm like well can you show me (laughs) (laughs) okay well that's a higher bar to clear because there's a lot of guys out there older guys and younger guys who are into like the sort of daddy boy vague hinting at but the actual going to the incest role play you know not actual incest for a lot of people that you know trips the wire that deflates erections and dries up pussies because you get to actual incest role play and people can't in their, in the moment when they're fucking around and they're saying these dirty incest role play things, not actual incest. We're not endorsing actual incest any more than we endorse actually owning slaves. People do master slave role play. Nobody should own anybody, but people get to that and they're like attempt to go there for somebody and they're saying, you know, my my son, and all they can think about is their own father or their own kid if they're one of those gay men out there who have sons. And that's like a not sexy kind of circuit breaker that I see. obliterates so, erections. So is it something that I should probably, you know, maybe just bookmark for my own jack-off time? No, or? no there are guys out there who, can, who will do this and, and who do enjoy it. I, I'm just saying they're going to be scarcer. They're going to be a little thinner on the ground than guys who can do the sort of daddy boy dirty talk, which is divorced from actual fathers and sons. But you want to go to actual fathers and sons dirty talk, not just older, stronger, more domineering father figure dirty talk. No, 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 no. I I want like full on role play. You can find it. There are lots of people out there who are into it. It's going to be harder to find. I think that – just to strategize with you if you really wanted this, the place to start is with somebody who can tap into just the daddy boy divorced from actual fathers and sons and incest role play and really enjoy that with him and then slowly roll out like there are role play scenarios that I've always fantasized about with daddy boy such as like the one you just rolled out and see what he says. He might say, yeah, that's too much for me or he might say – that turns me on. Or he might say, you know, until I started messing around with you, I probably couldn't have gone there. But because I feel good about you and safe with you and you're sane and you're fun, let's give it a whirl. But if you had led with that initially, like I'm looking for someone who wants to pretend to be my actual father, that guy who might get there with you eventually would not be able to get there with you 
if you just did that out the gate. Should I just be hanging out at like CC Seattle's and like <laughs> trolling around for, for, you know, dad type? Yeah, you should go for like, there's, you know, you're a, a gay guy in his twenties. I'm sure there's lots of gay guys in their forties and fifties who would be thrilled to be approached by you. So approach. It's not that hard to identify as a boy. You know, you can go out and get t-shirts that say boy. You can get dog collars that say boy. You can get baseball hats that say boy. You can be very explicit that you're kind of a boy-identified mid-20s gay man. (laughs) And that will attract the guys who are appropriate. And then you'll see. You'll see. And you try to upgrade. But you have a boyfriend too, right? You just said? Yeah. How does he feel about this? Well, I mean, he he, he likes me to call him daddy and he calls me boy. But knowing his... uh, his traumatic childhood. I don't try to go. I don't try to go there with him. Uh, and I haven't really brought it up with him uh-huh. uh, because he, he was molested as a child and uh, like yeah. that, that, that I, and I'm sympathetic to that. And I, and I get that that was a terrible experience and, and all that jazz, but you know, um, he's okay with me going out and playing and you know, I, I, he, I'm where I wear his collar and we're part of a pretty good network of of leathermen here in Seattle. Mm-hmm. But it's not that this whole like daddy son role play thing isn't something that I pull out or ask people to do because of the stigma around it. And right. so, you know, I don't I, I don't necessarily want to go around and have the entire leather community here in Seattle, you know, oh, you know, Johnny's boy is is really into this daddy son role play thing because I think that that could bring up some really negative things from my partner's past. Right. Um, that, that's very caring and empathetic of you. Your partner also has a right to, uh, I don't know, not to be informed, but uh, you should respect his history, respect his trauma, be considerate as you are. You also have to respect his agency. There are some people who've had trauma in their life, sexual trauma and have interests or kinks that mirror it or even, for some replicate it. There are some people out there who, from a really healthy place are able to relive and be in control of now what they were not in control of then and mine it. And we don't know if that's true for your boyfriend. almost use it as like a therapy. Yes. Almost use it like therapy right now. Okay. Yes, but, but, but you don't spring this shit on people and you have to be very careful about how you roll it out and how you ask for it. I don't think you have anything to be ashamed of. And when you bring it up, you know, with your partner and there's lots of, Father, son, particularly comic book incest porn, incest role play yeah. porn out there, that there would be a way to broach the subject with your partner to see how he feels about it. And maybe he's going to say, yeah, never, 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 could never go there. And that eh, kind of triggering for me. And then you drop it forever. But you can raise it in a context forever. of not, can we do this? But this is the thing that is done and see how he feels about it. So you're not putting him on the spot. You're not uh, saying to him, his reaction. Yeah, you're not saying to him, you're going to fail as a partner to me if we don't go here because you don't feel that way, but you're just saying no, him, this no. is a thing that people do and you can see how he reacts. And, and oh, one, really last, one last piece of practical mm-hmm. advice for you. When you want to upgrade someone you're playing with daddy boy to father, son, it really helps even if it's a lie. And I hope it's not, it really helps to say I have no interest in actual incest with anybody that I'm actually related to. This isn't about, wanting to fuck my dad or my brothers or my cousins or my uncles or anything. This is just about 
And that's true of most people who have incest fantasies. They have incest fantasies around sort of the mother, father, sister, brother, uncle, aunt archetype. But not – you say, what about your actual aunts? And they're like, no, my God. No. <laughs> not my actual aunts. <laughs> but like if Kate Bundy had been my aunt, right? That's often what will come out. Good luck to you. Up, Dan. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. I appreciate it. Hey, Dan. I am a 27-year-old pansexual living in the Midwest, and I recently decided to become celibate. And I was thinking, I've never really heard you talk about celibacy on your show, and I just wanted to know what your take was on it. My feelings on celibacy are slightly similar to my feelings about cunnilingus. It's right for some people, not for me. If it makes you happy, if... Sex is something you could take or leave or sex is creating a lot of chaos and drama in your life and you don't know how to put sex in harness so that it works for you like a plow horse as opposed to some wild horse that's trampling everything in your life. Then yeah, be celibate. Be pansexually celibate, which I guess would mean that you don't have sex with everybody or with anybody. But if it works for you right now, I fully support your choice to be celibate. I have no problem with it. I'm not one of those people who thinks that everybody has to be having sex to be healthy or fully self-actualized or anything. Sex is something that people do for their own personal reasons and sex is something that people don't do for their own personal reasons. And if you right now as a pansexual wish to be a celibate pansexual, which I guess would mean that you don't have sex with people of all genders and sexual orientations, I fully support that. In a way, I'm a nearly a celibate pansexual myself because I only have sex with (laughs) – a very narrow band of people on the sexual orientation and gender spectrum. Good luck to you and your celibacy. Hi, Dan. I'm a 36-year-old new mom in a heteromonogamous marriage, and I want to talk to you about birth control. My husband and I use condoms, and for some reason, I've been taking a fair amount of shit for this. A while ago, the topic came up with some of my casual friends. Not my, like, good, known-forever, all-life friends, but just, like, your casual, met-them-wherever sort of friends. And they... We're all on some sort of pill or implant. I had an IUD, whatever. And when I said that I used condoms, they all gave me this really like disbelieving, condescending look. And I spent the next 20 minutes defending my use of condoms. And it was kind of ridiculous. And I said, you know, I used to be on the pill, but it gave me headaches and it made me feel crazy. So I stopped. Also, I like the impermanence of condoms. You know, I'd like to have another baby at some point, and when the time is right, all we'll have to do is just not put on the condom, and we'll be good to go. Anyway, I felt like the whole discussion was ridiculous, because who cares, and I'm an adult, and leave me alone. So that was stupid, but I thought it was an isolated incident. Then I had the baby and was in the hospital for three days. So while I was recovering, all of these doctors and nurses kept coming in and offering to put in an IUD, and I kept refusing and saying, no, we use condoms. And they gave me the same condescending look with this pitying sort of like, oh, condoms, that's so sad. And I don't know. And this is not like it happened a couple of times. I'm talking like I was in the hospital for three days and like five or six doctors a day were coming in and being like, so let's talk about an IUD. It was, it was crazy. So I don't know whether the IUD people were offering a grand prize to the OB who installed the most or whether it's just believed that the only reason to be in a monogamous relationship is so that you don't have to use condoms. But, you know, 
The other thing is, is these people didn't know me, so I could have been in an open relationship and used condoms for that reason, in which case, shame on them for being judgy. So, anyway, I'm in the middle of all this rambling. My question is, is condom shaming a thing? I would never have thought so, but now I'm not so sure. And I guess what I'm really hoping to get from you is a soundbite that I can bookmark on my phone and play to anyone who might pull this crap on me again. Because hopefully you're on my side and you're pro-condom. Dan Savage, pro-condom. I'm not sure if condom shaming is a thing, but certainly most people regard condoms as an unpleasant fact of life if you're in an open relationship or you have multiple partners. And one of the perks, one of the benefits of a long-term committed relationship, whether it's monogamous or not, is getting fluid bonded and being able to toss those condoms in the trash forever and being freed from them. So I don't think people are trying to shame you. I think people are revealing their own feelings about condoms when they hear that they're your preferred method of birth control, that this is an active choice for you. And when people have that reaction – you know, I I think they shouldn't be incredulous. They shouldn't shame you. They shouldn't bully you about your choice to use condoms. I also think you shouldn't take it too much to heart because really the way you use condoms and the way you feel about condoms is unique. Most people don't use condoms the way you do or feel about them the way you do. And all you have to do when you have a minority interest, taste, preference is stick up for it and defend it. So if somebody says, oh, my God, really? You use condoms? You say, yeah, they work for us. And they're really effective birth control when used consistently and correctly. And we do. And we prefer them. And hormonal methods don't work for me. And and if they push back against that, you can just look at them like they're crazy. Like it's not your dick and it's not your pussy. So it's not your issue. Maybe that's the soundbite you're looking for. Not your dick, not your pussy, not your issue. Not your monkeys, not your circus. Fuck off. We use condoms. They make us happy. Also, another reason that some people use condoms is there are women out there and some men who are allergic to their partner's semen, that their partner's semen can induce rashes, can induce nausea. People will have allergic reactions to their partner's semen because of certain enzymes that are present in some that some people are more sensitive to than others. So you can toss that out there too if you want to falsely claim that you're allergic to your partner's semen or you just want to add that to the list of reasons that people might want to use condoms in the context of a committed long-term relationship, not just because they're effective birth control, not just because some women can't take hormonal birth control, but also some folks get sick, not STI sick, just sick, sick, rashes, sick to the stomach, sick when they're exposed to their partner's semen. Good luck to you. Hi, Dan. Today, I just found out that my friend's BS has herpes, and I don't know whether or not I should tell him to not stay with him. I'm really, like, in a place where I just, I kind of want to say, like, leave the relationship, but he's really happy. I don't know what to do. I believe in instances like this, we should err on the side of minding our own fucking business and keeping our fucking mouths shut. That said, what will happen? Let's game this out. You go to your friend and you tell him that his boyfriend, you've heard through, I don't know where you heard this through. I don't know how you found this out. Through the grapevine, through idle gossip, which may or may not be true. You did, I, I don't think you had access to his medical records, right? You heard this from someone who may be lying, who may be a malicious 
piece of shit, but you heard this. So you go to your friend and you tell him his boyfriend has herpes and your friend looks at you and says, yeah, I know. We talked about sexually transmitted infections. He disclosed that to me. And then what do you look like? You look like a shit stirring asshole who is trying to destroy his happiness. And you're not actually going to be very welcome at the wedding or a person that they're going to feel comfortable as a couple hanging out with in the future, particularly if he tells his boyfriend what you told him. Let's assume that he doesn't know that his boyfriend has herpes and you go and tell him. They're still not going to feel comfortable hanging out with you together as a couple if they weather the storm of this disclosure and manage to stay together as a couple. You're not going to be invited to the wedding because forever his boyfriend and potential future husband one day will look at you as the malicious gossipy piece of shit who outed him as having herpes and perhaps he should have disclosed himself and sooner and immediately, but he didn't because he was embarrassed or ashamed or herpes really isn't that big a fucking deal. Or maybe you go and tell your friend that his boyfriend has herpes and your friend tells you that so does he and he has for a long time because a lot of people have herpes, including a lot of people who don't know they have herpes, including potentially you. You could have herpes for all you know. There's a lot of people out there who don't know they got it and do. So this dirty little secret, this dirt that you have on your friend's boyfriend could be a dirty little secret the universe is keeping from you about you. Which just brings me back to stay the fuck out of it, right? If you've had conversations with your friend in the past, if he is completely paranoid about sexually transmitted infections, if he has told you that he would have a heart attack and die if he ever contracted HPV or herpes or anything else, Maybe that creates an obligation as a good friend to him for you to bring him the bad news. But if that's not the case, shut your mouth. Hi, Dan. 26-year-old bisexual female here in a monogamish relationship. And I just have a beef with this twin community. What is with orally bi guys? Is this, it seems that as we're looking for people to hook up with, Many men are not interested in kissing other men, but they're definitely interested in sucking cock. This just seems weird to me. And it's like an issue. It's, you know, it's not fair when me and my partner are hooking up with another guy and I can kiss him and he can't. We just don't really like the hard and fast boundaries. Um, I guess what I'm asking is like, is this men denying their bisexuality and not being comfortable with it? But, you know, still really wanting it. So they just admit that they like cock and not kissing men or is it an actual thing? There are a lot of bi guys out there who identify as bi and God bless them and more of these guys should identify as bi uh, because some don't. There are guys out there who want to suck dick, who want to give a hand job, and don't think that they're bi because they don't want to have a relationship with a man. They don't want to kiss a man. They don't feel like they could make a feel any sort of romantic attachment to a man but they want to mess around with a dick. It's dick that they're attracted to, not dudes. And some of these guys will go see trans women who have not had bottom surgery and be able to enjoy her and her dick because it's dick that arouses and excites them. And I think that this is a completely legitimate manifestation of male bisexuality, that you don't have to be blind to gender at any point on the sexual spectrum. You don't have to be open to relationships with men or women or both that you can have something from the buffet that's very specific and limited and you should still, I think, identify as bi. It's legit. That said, there's this book about 
coming out and being gay in America, this memoir that for a lot of gay men of my generation and I think subsequent generations, it's a really important book called The Best Little Boy in the World by Andrew Tobias. And in it, there's this phrase he uses, which is cowboys don't kiss. That as he understood his homosexuality, as he was wrestling with it, he didn't really think he was gay. He didn't think he was one of those feminine sissies because he wanted to have relationships with men or something with men. And the distinction he drew and what made him not a, a sissy was that he wanted to have sex with men but he didn't want to kiss them because cowboys don't kiss. And so there are guys out there where that's the line that they can't cross, that that kind of intimacy, which – we usually only see and typically only see and particularly then in 1973, you only ever saw presented as something men and women did together, that they kissed, they made out, they put their tongues in their each other's mouth and to do that, to, to make out, to kiss was one of you had to be the girl in that interaction somehow in some symbolic or psychic way and for a lot of gay guys and I remember this was really common when I was coming out in 1980-ish. There are a lot of gay guys out there who would have sex with men, who would have relationships with men, but wouldn't fucking kiss them. That that for some was this bar they couldn't clear. So that could be the case for some of these guys who are bi, that it's just homophobia, internalized homophobia, internalized biphobia, that they feel that there's something fundamentally wrong or gross or inappropriate or sinful or sick about their attraction to men and their interactions with men. So they put this artificial limit on it. They draw a line and say, yeah, I'm a, you know, I'm bi, but I'm not the kind of bi guy who kisses men. I don't do that. And that was what you would hear from gay men. You know, I have sex with men. I don't kiss men. And it was crazy. It drove me crazy because that was really what I wanted to do at first. And there's other ways people make these distinctions. One way I made a distinction when I was first coming out was I was going to be gay but I wasn't going to be one of those gay guys who had disgusting, dirty, filthy, awful anal sex, right? Because that was terrible and it made straight people really uncomfortable. So I wasn't going to be the kind of gay person who did that thing that made straight people really uncomfortable. And then they'd like me even if they hated the rest of the gays. They would like me because I wasn't a butt fucker. That didn't last long. Anyway, in summation, the answer to your question is – yeah, yeah, there are some bi guys completely legit. They're just interested in the dick. They're just there for the dick and that is fine and I think it's legitimate. But there are also some guys who can't kiss, can't make out, some gay and bi guys can't kiss, can't make out with a man fewer on the ground today than there used to be because of their own internalized homophobia or internalized biphobia. How do you know the difference? You just got to trust your gut. Hopefully the guys you're with who are bi, who want to have these three ways are – intelligent, articulate, self-aware, and they can make the case themselves for why this is a limit for them. That why dick in the mouth but not another dude's tongue in the mouth. That that should be something that the bi guy you're in bed with and sharing a dick with should be able to discuss with you and not rationalize but justify. Hey, Dan. I am a 23-year-old lady dating a 26-year-old dude. Um, Pretty much everything is perfect. We're really happy. Um, he makes me happy. All that shit. It's good. Uh, but obviously, it's not perfect because that's why I'm calling you. So the issue is I'm white and his family is from India. Uh, he was raised here. He's like very culturally American. And he's not even Hindu, but it's still like that's his family. Because of that, his family really, really, really does not like us dating. Uh, we've been dating for a little over a year. We're 
pretty serious. I mean, as serious as like 23 year olds are about anything, but they don't want to meet me. They have told him that um, like all white people are going to betray him. And then I'm going to try to like get knocked up to take off a sweet, sweet uh, money. And just this like very hurtful stuff that I don't super appreciate. <laughs> I mean, they've known about me for a while. Um, and like he's met my family and my family loves him. But yeah, so there's that. And the problem is now I'm actually going to meet them <laughs> for the first time pretty soon. And it's this thing where it's like I know they've been, you know, being very judgmental and very rude about me about all of this stuff for a long time. And I don't really know how to act. Like, I don't want to be inflammatory. I want to be very peaceful. But also, I don't know, it's just really kind of hard to look someone in the face who you know really wants you hit by a truck. <laughs> and, yeah, I don't know. I just don't really know how to deal with that. Because, again, it's like I love my boyfriend. I don't want to cause him stress. Um, but also, I don't want to start a, like, long-term pattern of his family thinking that, you know, I'm not good enough for him and that they, they can, like, walk all over me. So, yeah, I don't know. I guess it's kind of like a weird, like, turf war thing. I don't know. What do I do? How do I act? How do I play nice with people who want me in a trash can? You have two options. You get pregnant and destroy your boyfriend's life. You'd be the person that they're claiming you are just to fuck with them, which I don't think is the option that you should choose. Or you go in there with the biggest smile on your face, act as if you your boyfriend hadn't come and told you all these things that his family was saying about you, which maybe he shouldn't have. And you would just sit there like a stick of butter wouldn't melt in your ass that you are just the nicest, kindest person on the planet. And you make them hopefully maybe potentially someday feel terrible about the awful things that they've said about you. you be the opposite of everything that they claimed you were not to prove to them that, they were wrong about you, but to show them the fuck up, to take your revenge upon them, you smile and smile and smile at them. That's the tack I would take. That is indeed the tack I did take decades ago when I would meet a boyfriend's parents who didn't want to meet me because I was the guy who sodomized their son. Really, 30 years ago, the first Reagan administration People weren't into meeting their son's boyfriends so much, not nearly as much as they're into meeting them now. And you just had to go in like I went in, like butter wouldn't melt in your fucking ass. And hopefully, if they have a conscience, you can make them feel terrible about the things that they said about you without ever having met you or known you. All that said, your boyfriend needs to be the one who does the most running of interference with his parents. Your boyfriend, in addition to running to you and telling you what they're saying about you, hopefully is sticking up for you. If you go in there, if his parents are shitty to your face and your boyfriend allows them to do that without any pushback or challenge, yeah, maybe he's not the person that you think he is. If he wants to be with you, if he choo choo chooses you, Simpsons reference, then he has to be your advocate with his parents. You can't advocate for yourself. It's really hard for someone to advocate for themselves with the parents of their partner. It is on the partner to advocate for their partner to their parents, if need be. And need be here. Need fucking definitely be. Hey, Dan. Um, I have a parenting question for you. Um, my 
the mom and I are separated. Um, we have a few kids, but I'm calling about one. They are or were a girl, early teens. They attend a very progressive school with very supportive administration and students in terms of LGBT issues. They hang in a very progressive community with other youth. My kid has identified as lesbian or bi for some time, as early as 10 or 12, with little hesitation or apparent filter out to classmates and teachers. Mom has been a little slow to acknowledge uh, or respect the lesbian or bi identification, but certainly not oppressive or argumentative about it. They really just don't talk about it that much. I always was supportive while stressing that you don't really need to label yourself permanently at such a young age, that sexuality can be fluid and basically be who you are and, and you'll be loved. The problem I'm having now is that they've started to identify as male, but really only apparently in words. I've had trans acquaintances. I, I, I've known other trans youth, and it's been kind of obvious. It sort of made sense uh, to everyone. In this case, it doesn't feel as authentic, if that's the word, to me and many others who, who know my kid. It, it's a situation where you call me your son, use male pronouns, use this non-gender-specific name I've created, but then they wear miniskirts and makeup and shop at young women's clothing stores. Again, if my kid's the kid's circle was super judgmental of LGBT folks or conservative religious house or, or something, I would feel like they were only dressing that way to fit in or even for their own safety. But that's really not the situation. It feels in my gut like appropriation. If my kid was pulling a Rachel Dalzell on race, I would call them out and say, this is bullshit, stop it, you're not black. In this case, I can't really do that. I, I know I can't dictate to my teen or, or anyone what gender they are. And if I feel this is fake and call them out on it, I'll only likely drive them further into trying to prove I'm wrong. You know, teen logic. I don't want that. I want them to simply be themselves, LGBT, straight, whatever. How do I handle this with them so I, and, and more importantly, my kid, can be respectful of the trans folks who really, really struggle with this? and be supportive of my own kid because I know there are simply too many LGBT kids who are dead because of unaccepting parents and others, and I will do everything in my power not to allow my kid to add to that horrible statistic. Joining me by phone, Dr. Robert Garofalo, co-director of the Gender and Sex Development Program at Lurie Children's Hospital and a professor of pediatrics at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. Thanks so much for jumping on the phone today, Dr. Garofalo. Can I call you Robert? Oh, of course. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so... This dad is really concerned about his son. They are identifying now as trans after having identified as uh, bi and also as a lesbian for a time. And I've never heard someone express this particular concern that he's not sure his son is trans and is concerned that this is somehow cultural appropriation by a small child or by a, a tween or a young adult. What's just, just like zooming out for a second, a parent whose kid identifies as trans or tells them they're trans, what do you look for? Because it is a fact, is it not, that not all kids who identify as trans continue to do so throughout their lives? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think when you're doing this work with children um, and adolescents that, you know, three words sort of come to mind, uh, you know, persistent, consistent and insistent in terms of sort of a gender identity or a gender expression that is somehow different than the anatomic sex to which someone may have been assigned at birth. Mm -hmm. You know, so those are the sort of three terms that we tend to think of 
in terms of principles that may guide us in sort of identifying a gender nonconforming or ultimately a transgender uh, child or adult. Okay, so give me those three words again. Right. So the three terms are consistent. So they should have these feelings um, about their identity or expression over time. Um, Insistent, meaning that they should, you know, really sort of be fairly emphatic that this is sort of who they are, you know, now in their sort of affirmed selves. And then uh, persistent, persistent, meaning that it should occur again, you know, somewhat over time, that this isn't like a snapshot of, you know, looking at a young person. Okay, so there's two things that that uh, insistent, consistent, persistent raised for me, which are first that this kid identified as bi and also or concurrently or then as lesbian. And the dad had no problem accepting that. That the dad wasn't hanging back going, are you sure? I don't know. You're appropriating lesbian identity or bi identity. Maybe you're not. And so it didn't have to be insistent, consistent, or persistent. Now, insistent, consistent, persistent, that takes time. So your kid identifies as trans, tell you, tells you they're trans. They want to be called by this new name. They want you to respect their gender identity, the professed gender identity. It takes time to get to insistent, consistent, persistent. What is the best tack for a parent as they wait for that time to pass – to, to get to the point where they can see that this is indeed insistent, persistent, consistent. Yeah, I mean, I think the best path is to take, you know, it's hard to give parental advice sort of over the phone without sort of meeting with a parent or a child. But usually my advice is just to allow the young person to sort of live in the here and now and to continue to provide that young person with sort of a healthy sort of environment and context, whether that be at home or at school or in their community, to continue to sort of feel supported and loved. Mm -hmm. And that may take, you know, some changes in the way we, uh, you know, use terminology or in the way that we refer to young people. I think it's important that we note that like, you know, being transgender is sort of an umbrella term that encompasses a whole range of people whose gender identity or their expression can vary from a lot from each other, but to some extent will disagree or be discordant with the anatomic sex they were born with. So for some people, those identities may continue to fit very squarely along sort of a male-female sort of gender binary. You know, someone like Caitlyn Jenner comes to mind, you know, even though you know, Caitlyn Jenner has transitioned. Caitlyn still seems to appear to conform along a somewhat gender binary. But there are a lot of young people out there that are far more fluid or gender expansive. The blogger Tyler Ford comes to mind. Mm-hmm. So I think it's hard for, you know, parents to necessarily uh, adapt or deal with uh, young people or children when um, their gender identity or their expression can, is fluid or expansive and doesn't necessarily fit the gender binary that we in society are far more comfortable uh, dealing with or addressing. And I think that's really clear in the call uh, for the dad when he raises the issue of uh, his kid who's identifying as trans, identifying as male, still wearing mini skirts and makeup. And so in his eyes, the dad's eyes, this kid is failing at his trans identity failing at being male, despite the fact that when I was a young boy, I've known other boys who wore miniskirts and experimented with makeup. There's a big sort of online viral sensation the last couple of days about this 10-year-old who wants to be a drag queen when he grows up and got all up in makeup. Like makeup is something a boy can do too. But this dad is really kind of looking at his son, looking at this kid who is now identifying as trans and going, you're failing at 
boy, you're failing at mail, therefore you must be lying, and that's not necessarily true. Yeah, so I mean, I want to be careful to 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 sort of hang this dad out to dry because I think while he is somewhat misguided, he does seem sort of well-intentioned, at least on the phone, but I think you raise a couple of really important points. I mean, first of all, it's important to note that not every transgender person struggles with their identity or with their body parts. For some young people, transitioning only in words, you know, which is what this data seems to be describing, can be really sufficient in terms of ensuring well-being or for making people feel comfortable with themselves. I think the other thing is the appropriation language or the misappropriation language that the dad uses, I think is a little um, unfortunate, I I would say. And I, I would have him like reconsider or refrain from sort of scrutinizing his child's identity or his, or expression um, with a lens that's informed by sort of identity politics. So again, the, the Rachel Dolezal reference I think is unfortunate and I would encourage this dad to shy away from that type of characterization because again, if, you know, if his child, uh, you know, hears that type of characterization, I think he is more likely to become sort of defensive more than oppositional. And, you know, I don't think it's healthy for a young person to sort of hear their parent, perhaps identify themselves as a, as a phony. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not sure that it's helpful to sort of disaffirm a child in the way that the child is kind of done in that um in that particular phone call. And again, I don't want to characterize the dad by that one phone call because again, I think he may be very well intentioned, even though perhaps a little misguided in some of his um, verbiage, at least on that call. Okay. One last awkward question for you. And I, I, feel, I feel awkward asking this question. Uh-oh. So we know that not all kids who identify as trans continue to, to identify as trans. Um, Correct. So how do you stick that dismount when you've accepted your kid's trans identity Uh, what's the best way a parent can handle that? You know, you want to be affirming and supportive, but I think as a parent, you don't want to be overly invested in what a great parent you are to a trans kid because your trans kid might not always be a trans kid. So when your kid who perhaps identified as trans and you accepted and you affirmed and you used the pronouns that they wanted you to use, used the name they wanted you to use, you got the clothes for them that they wanted to wear, and then they stop identifying as trans – what do you say? Yeah. How do you react to that? How do you how do you stick that dismount? I mean, I think what you're describing is just good parenting in general. You know, the good parents that I have of transgender identified uh, young people are the same good parents that I would describe for any other set of sort of adolescents. I mean, so what you're describing is appropriate boundaries between the parent-child relationship and having a, a, a parent that is very comfortable in learning to support their child regardless of how he or she or they, you know, may present on, an, on any one given day without getting sort of overly invested in that particular identity in any particular moment in time. You know, I think the best parents that that I see again for general adolescents or for my gender non-conforming or transgender adolescents are one that, you know, really have open hearts and minds in terms of the way they approach their children and raise them in environments that are just overarchingly supportive um, and support sort of healthy adolescent development. Dr. Robert Garofalo, co-director of the Gender and Sex Development Program at Lurie Children's Hospital and professor of pediatrics at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone today and helping me tackle this one. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Hey, Dan. Uh, 20-something male here, Southern California. What's happened an issue with my girlfriend? Uh, it's like 
she says that she has issues with birth control and that whenever she's tried to take it, it's given her, like, bad side effects and she doesn't want to take it. And for me, it's like I already have some, I have some issues with, like, ED and, like, condoms just compound it. Um, I have no problems without them. And, like, sometimes after a period, we'll, we won't use condoms and it's great. And then other, I mean, most times with condoms, it can be great too, but just going forward, it's kind of a bummer for me because part of being in a relationship is the luxury of not having to use protection, you know, usually other than, you know, birth control or something because you're not worried about giving each other STDs, you know, assuming you're monogamous, which we are. But in this case, you know, she doesn't want to mess with any birth control and it's just frustrating to think that we're going to have to use condoms forever, you know. I mean, we're not going to be together forever, but I mean, throughout our relationship. So I was just hoping maybe you had some advice, uh, maybe some alternative forms of birth control you can recommend that maybe I can see if she'll give it a go. All of our eyebrows in the room kind of shot up when you said you might have to use condoms forever. Well, not forever, but for as long as you're in this relationship, which made me think maybe you're not entirely committed to this relationship. Maybe you're having second thoughts. Maybe you and she shouldn't be fluid bonded. If that's how you feel, maybe you should be using condoms and just powering through those ED moments. But if you are committed and you want a fluid bond, you two, you have options besides hormonal birth control. There are IUDs that are really effective that do not have a hormonal component. She should talk to her gynecologist. She should make an appointment at Planned Parenthood and discuss that after you two discuss it and see if that's something she's willing to do. Another option, and this one kind of spooks people sometimes when you talk about it, is the pull-out method, which is actually surprisingly more effective than a lot of people believe it is. Let's take condoms. Condoms under perfect use. Two out of 100 people who use them perfectly will get pregnant in a calendar year. Imperfect use, people don't know what they're doing. A condom breaks. They don't put it on correctly. They don't check to make sure that it's still on or that they're holding on to it as they withdraw. 18 out of 100 people who use condoms probably going to get pregnant in any given calendar year according to Planned Parenthood. Compare that to withdrawal. Used correctly. Withdrawal, which means you don't use a condom, you don't use any other form of birth control, you just don't ejaculate inside her, you don't blow your load in her, you pull out before you're going to come, porn style, and you blow your load on her stomach, on her back, on a houseplant, on a cat, on yourself, anywhere but in her vag, right? Using that method, four women out of 100 will become pregnant every year when used perfectly. When used imperfectly because the guy isn't paying attention, because the guy forgets, because accidents happen. 27 out of 100 women using, 100 men and women, using this birth control method in a given calendar, you're going to become pregnant. Compared to 18 out of 100 becoming pregnant in a calendar, you're using condoms not perfectly. So withdrawal is actually pretty effective, not as effective as condoms, but pretty effective. And if she is pro-choice, if she is willing to get an abortion, if you guys draw the short straw or the big dick or whatever it is and somebody gets pregnant because the condom failed and there is that risk or the withdrawal method failed, which means in this instance you would have failed it, call her. You have a workaround for her desire to avoid hormonal birth control methods and for your desire to not use a condom in the context of this committed, presumably monogamous, fluid bondy relationship. 
Hi, Ben. I'm a bisexual female in her mid-20s. I'm calling because I royally screwed up and would love your advice on how to fix things. Over the holidays, my boyfriend of three years and I engaged in our first threesome with one of my male friends who lives out of state. This threesome was planned two months in advance when I asked my friend if he'd be interested in fooling around with us when we eventually came for a visit. We figured out our window of opportunity and jumped on it. It was a really positive experience overall. My boyfriend was the only one who vaginally penetrated me, but all three of us engaged in oral sex on each other. There was really good communication throughout the whole night, and all three of us left with a good taste in our mouths, pun intended. Four days later, after our encounter, I realized my grave and embarrassing mistake. I forgot to tell my friend that I had HDV. I felt sick to my stomach. Uh, I was afraid to tell him after the fact, but afraid of what the consequence would be if he got checked for STDs in the near future. My boyfriend already knows I have HPV and we've made our precautions so he wouldn't have it, but we just got so used to our routine. It completely slipped my mind to tell my friend. Um, and so I knew I had to tell my friend ASAP, even though I knew the damage was already done. So I called him at this point five days after our orally exhaustive encounter. His response was surprisingly cavalier. He said there was you know, one in a million chance that HPP could be spread orally and that he wasn't worried about it, but he thanked me for telling him. But, you know, obviously he didn't chastise, he didn't hesitate to chastise me for telling him so late in the game. But we did hang up on a friendly note. I'm just not able to let myself off the hook so easily. I still feel so stupid and foolish for having forgotten to tell him, especially when I had two months to say something. Also, is it even true that there's a one in a million chance that HPV spreads through oral or oral saliva membranes? I don't, shamefully, I don't know a whole lot about my own disease. What is the likelihood that a man could receive HPV from eating a woman out or anybody eating a woman out? Mainly, though, I'm worried about our friendship from here on in. I don't want my friend to look back on this otherwise terrific experience with disgust, and I especially don't want him to think of me in disgust as we move forward. Should I grovel some more so he knows how completely immature and stupid I feel? Or should I give him some space and risk him not talking to me ever again? Let's mosey on over to the Centers for Disease Control's website, shall we? HPV is the most common sexually transmitted infection. HPV is so common that nearly all sexually active men and women get it at some point in their lives. In most cases, HPV goes away on its own and does not cause any health problems. But... But, important but, when HPV does not go away, it can cause health problems like genital warts and certain cancers, which are a big deal. Anyway, and now it's me ranting, no longer the CDC website, the numbers of people who have HPV or have been exposed to HPV and still have it or it went away compared to the tiny, relatively tiny number of people who develop those serious health outcomes, not warts, but cancers, huge in the latter case. 
small in the former case. This is one of those instances. The panic about HPV is one of those instances where we apply a different standard when it comes to assessing risk and potential negative or physically harmful outcomes to sex than we apply to anything else, right? People eat chicken salad and die. People go to Chipotle and get really sick. Sorry, Chipotle. People go snowboarding and slam into trees and die. And we don't say, therefore, trees should have to disclose their presence on the hills and or nobody should do that. You should never eat a fucking chicken salad ever again because this bad thing that is highly unlikely to happen might happen. But that's the standard we apply to sex when it comes to big nothing burritos like HPV as a sexually transmitted infection. And it is, of course, my heart goes out to anyone out there who suffered from cervical cancer, anal cancer, or oral cancers that were HPV related. But it is when you're assessing the benefits and the pleasures versus the risks, it is a big nothing burrito. And people panic over it unnecessarily because in some cases, there is this really negative, terrible outcome. But that also applies to chicken salad and burritos and snowboarding, right? We get to make choices about the amount of risk we're comfortable incurring, really shouldering in our lives in pursuit of pleasure. You know, we don't just run from home to work and then lock ourselves in the safe room all night long in case some bad fucking thing might happen. We get out there in the world and we have experiences and we do things and we say, all right, the small risk of a terrorist attack in Egypt while I'm out there looking at the pyramids is worth shouldering because I would really like to see the fucking pyramids. So this guy that you had a three-way with, if he's a rational and sane adult, probably thought the small risk of acquiring a serious sexually transmitted infection, and I don't think HPV counts, is worth shouldering the risk. The, the small risk of that is worth the pleasure of this crazy, fun fucking three-way. I actually think anybody who's out there having multiple partners, having a sexually adventurous kind of life, you have volunteered to be exposed to certain kinds of sexually transmitted infections, particularly the skin-to-skin ones like HPV and herpes, which are so not a big deal in the experiences of most people, not just who've been exposed, but who have them. Most people who have had herpes don't know they've had herpes. A lot of people are carriers and they've never had a single blister or sore or symptom or they had one sore once and it was such a little nothing sore they didn't even notice it and they don't even, they're not even aware that they have herpes. Herpes, also the big nothing that we panic about out of all proportion to its actual negative impacts. So what about this guy? The guy you called and confessed to and are wringing your hands at. It's possible he already has HPV and knows it. It's possible he's been exposed to HPV in the past and knows it. And it's just a little not annoyed with you for not disclosing this in advance, but a little flustered about how he's supposed to respond to your panic over this big nothing that is a sexually adventurous and sexually active adult with multiple partners. He is aware that he has signed up for the risk of exposure to, if not already having been exposed to it, like most sexually active adults have already been exposed to it. So he's probably letting you vent and letting you feel guilty and (laughs) wondering whether he stuck his dick in crazy, as the kids say, because you are being a little crazy about this. I think his estimate of there's only a one in a million shot that through oral he could have been exposed is low. I can't find anything in the literature or data that backs that up. HPV is 
transmittable through oral intercourse. I don't know if they've put a percentage mark on it. You would have to know exactly how much HPV is sloshing around out there, and we don't know that. And you would have to know exactly how much oral sex is slurping out around there, and we don't know that either. So we can't put that kind of number to it. But what you can do is you can put your fears to rest. Yes, in the best of all possible worlds, everyone would disclose HPV, herpes, HIV, everything else that their sex partners may have a right to know. Informed consent is important. I think you will not make this mistake again because clearly you feel guilty and terrible about this, but you should stop wringing your hands about it now. And when you disclose your HPV in the future to anyone else you're going to jump in the sack with, if they have some sort of irrational, panicky response to this news, if they treat you like you're some sort of diseased pariah, send them to the CDC's website because it can, if you can't, it can certainly talk them down. Hi, Dan. 28-year-old guy calling. having a really hard time right now. I, um, I had this ongoing closeted relationship with this guy i'm i'm out as bisexual i have been since i was like 17 um this guy is quote unquote straight and this thing went on for 10 years despite both of us having relationships and um uh going about our lives but we continue to reconnect and meet back up um i've been with this woman for four years um we have a child together and the first year of our relationship i cheated on her with this guy and i told her about it like a year later and we've been in couples counseling and stuff ever since and at one point uh last year she uh we had a separation and she left for a few months and stayed with family and during that few months of course he and i um you know, kicks us back up. So there was never any um, resolution or winding down. It was once she came back, I, I told him I was done. And, you know, we got into a hurtful fight. I think we were both affected by it. And um, I basically told him to fuck off and that if he ever talked to me again, I would out him. I don't know. He pops up every now and again in my life. We live in a small community. I'm in a recovery program. He turned up in there. So the issue that I'm having now is I'm trying to figure out what do I do now. Like I said, it keeps coming back up, and this is unresolved, and I've, I've heard you tell people that, you know, closure is not this thing that you're, you're automatically granted. But my, my sexuality basically is still on the table. Um, my girlfriend wants a monogamous relationship. I'm still trying to cope with that and figure out how to give up half of my sexuality for ideally or potentially uh, the rest of my life. So, yeah. I'm just having a really hard time. Your beef with this guy seems to boil down to the fact that he fucking exists, that he still exists, that he's out there existing and you may encounter evidence of his existence from time to time, even though you're done fucking him, even though you're finished with his dick in his holes, he has the nerve to exist in the community where you also exist and is presumably the space in which you met him when you wanted to have the affairs with him and wanted to fuck him. And now that it's over and you're done with him, how dare he continue to exist? Yeah, no. Don't fucking out him. I don't care what shitty things you guys said to each other when you dismissed him. And I think it's terrible that he's closeted. People should be out. Bye guys should be out. You should both be fucking out. 
it's hard to date somebody in the closet. That brings all sorts of stresses, whether the closet is the gay closet, the bi closet, the kink closet, the poly closet, whatever closet you're talking about. It's difficult for the person who is out to date the person who is closeted and that puts pressure on the out person and sometimes the out person gets kind of mad. But whatever the fuck went on, you don't have a right to out the dude. That's not a place you go. That's not a threat you lay. And you're not allowed to be angry at the dude for continuing to exist in contravention of your desires for him to evaporate. All that said, your problem seems to boil down to besides what to do about this guy, which is get the fuck over it. Sounds like you used him a little bit and maybe he's mad about that. Sounds like he was closeted and you're mad about that. And so you both are even. You both took little dumps on each other and you're done. But the question seems to boil down to what to do about the girlfriend. Well, she's issued you an ultimatum. You can have her, but you must commit to monogamy. You can counter her ultimatum with an ultimatum of your own. You can call her bluff. How badly does she want to be with you? Right now she's saying, if you want to be with me badly enough, monogamy. And you can counter that with, here's my offer. I will be with you. How badly do you want to be with me? But I get to bang dudes every once in a while. Unlike some bisexual guys, even most bisexual guys, I am not capable of monogamy. I need both men and women as sex partners in my life going forward. That's what the affair meant. I didn't, nobody wants to be a cheater. I cheated. We've lesson learned. There was deceit and dishonesty in me going out there and getting what I also needed in addition to you, in addition to heterosexual sex. I needed this homosexual sex and I lied to get it. I don't want to have to lie to get it anymore. And so I'm not going to make a monogamous commitment under duress that I know and that you should know I'm going to violate. So how badly do you want to be with me? Badly enough for there to be some accommodation for my sexuality or not? And if not, then it's over. Hey, Dan, the tech savvy at Reduce. Uh, I'm a 29-year-old gay man in a monogamous relationship with my boyfriend of about a year and a half. I have a question about holding on to digital content of past lovers and possible fuck buddies. My boyfriend and I are, in a pretty, are pretty open with each other about the use of our phones and laptops, but this became an issue a few months ago when I was uploading photos from one of our vacations and saw some folders of the names of guys he had some sexual encounters with in the past. Most of the content were photos and screenshots of the text messages with the guys, but there were a few sex videos in the mix. I told him when I saw the content that I was a little uncomfortable with the fact that he still had them, but he said he didn't really want to delete them because they were part of his past, so I just didn't let it go for a little while. However, this past weekend we were talking and he showed me that when he was deleting some of his text history, um, he went and I saw that he was going through and not deleting some of the messages from his old hookups and some of them were the same guys he had had on his computer. So this prompted me to again tell him that this is making me feel a little bit uncomfortable. So he again stated that this is part of his development, his personal and sexual exploration, and that he wants to keep these files and these text messages. I'm calling because while I do love and trust him, I want to see if I'm off base with feeling uncomfortable and explore a possible middle ground for this issue. I've had issues with jealousy in the past that I've been working through, but I feel like this is something reasonable for me to feel uncomfortable about. While I can see his perspective and ultimately these pictures, videos, and textures property, so I really don't feel like I have the right to tell him to delete them, nor have I ever asked, although self should really like to see that happen. 
I have a few collections of old-timey advice columns, books of Ann Landers' advice columns in the 50s and 60s and Abigail Van Buren's advice columns and the old Yiddish advice columns and uh, Yiddish newspapers in New York from the turn of the last century that were really the beginning of the whole advice column racket. And there's a question that I've spotted more than once in a lot of these collections. And it's from a distraught new husband or new wife who has discovered that their new spouse has a wedding album, a photo album from their previous marriage, that they were married once and got divorced and remarried to this person that they're with now who's writing to the advice columnist who is very upset that they found this photo album, this wedding album. Why is he keeping a wedding album? Why is she keeping a wedding album? And they demand that it be thrown away and the new spouse will not throw the wedding album away. Hit it another part of the house and where it was found again later and source of drama and conflict. And it occurs to me that sexts, videos and photos and dirty text conversations are the first wedding photo albums of our era. And my advice isn't going to differ greatly from Ann Landers or Abigail Van Buren's advice or the old Yiddish advice columnist's advice back at the turn of the last century, which is let your husband or wife or in this instance your boyfriend have his memories and his mementos so long as he keeps them in a place where you don't have to see them and be tormented by them all the time. There's a difference between a photo album from a failed first marriage that's tucked away in a box somewhere because – even if the marriage didn't work out, there may still be some fond memories or maybe there are photos from the wedding of uncles or aunts or great-grandparents who are no longer with us that they're loathed to throw away or whatever the fuck. This reason that your new husband wants to keep this wedding album, if it's tucked away in a box and you don't have to see it every day, if it's not on display on the mantle, suspend your disbelief and pretend it's not fucking there and don't go looking for it. And that would be my advice to you. Your boyfriend – has memories and like so many of us, he now outsources some of his memory space to computer files, digital storage and he has kept a few dirty pics and dirty videos for old time's sake and if he's not looking at them all the time, if you don't come home every day and find him jacking off to videos of, that he shot with a boyfriend from five years ago – if it takes nothing away from your relationship, if all the torment is an abstraction, some sort of existential nightmare for you, but there's actually no infraction on his part besides him having these things from his past relationships, you have to get the fuck over it. You have to let it go. You have to suspend your disbelief and forget it's there and let him have his memories however he chooses to store them. There's no problem here. You are making this a problem. He's not setting his laptop on your chest while you guys are fucking so he can watch these videos, right? They're just tucked away somewhere. And so the only problem is the problem of your creation, that you're making these a problem. He's not making them a problem. Stop making them a problem. Sounds like you have a decent relationship with a guy who has a trait that I admire in people and I think that people should look for in their new partners, which is he remembers the people that he was with in the past with affection. Beware not the boyfriend or girlfriend who has a few dirty photos from their ex in their files. Beware the boyfriend or girlfriend who burned all their photos of their ex 
or defaced them in Photoshop and sent them to their ex in a fit. Those are the ones you don't want to date. Not the ones who think back on their ex-boyfriend fondly, but the ones who think back on their ex-boyfriend murderously. Those are the ones to avoid. So stop making this non-issue an issue. It's the wedding album tucked away in a box. It's not the wedding album or the wedding photos on display on the mantle. Hi, this is a comment for the woman who had the dislocated jaw um, in episode 481. I had the same problem. And, you know, Dan, your, your advice was good. But the problem is when it starts happening, like it just keeps happening. Like it gets, it gets worse and easier to do. So my advice for her would be to use less mouth and more hands. Like use your mouth on the tip and use your hands for the rough stuff. And then once your jaw feels more solidified, literally solidified, <laughs> then you should be able to, to do it and kind of like unhinge your jaw a little bit when you need to. But yeah, you're, it's going to be three to six months. And if you don't, I'm afraid you'll start to get nerve pain in your jaw, which is what happened to me. And then I had to go to a doctor's appointment and say, yes, my boyfriend's cock is huge and he likes to ram it down my throat and I was having these problems. So that's how I learned that unfortunate lesson. But yeah, go slow, lots of hands, best of luck to you. Hey, Dan, I am calling about the guy dating two girls and then ended one to dump one because he liked the other one better. I, I totally disagree with your advice. Maybe it's just me, but I have a terrible imagination and if a guy dumped me and didn't tell me why. My mind would go into all sorts of awful things. Like, did I do something weird? Did I say something weird? That not knowing might cause more damage because of people's imaginations and minds wandering instead of just telling her, listen, I didn't know if we were exclusive. I was dating around and I met somebody um, and I think you're wonderful, but this person and I just have a really strong connection, and so I want to pursue that. Just saying something like that. I, I would respect that more as someone being dumped than no reason whatsoever. Uh, hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to uh, the girl who called in last episode about the Adam Craigslist uh, with the guy that wanted to talk to her while she was naked or partially naked. Um, what I would recommend to her, if she's in a city that has any local BDSM fetish clubs or dungeons, often they offer rentals, and these types of places are friendly to activities like this and often very safe and completely camera-free. So if there's a local dungeon, I would suggest that she calls to ask about a room rental, and that might be one of the safest and most convenient places for her uh, to be able to meet with this guy and make some extra cash. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you would like to record a question, leave a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Coming up, special events. We are doing a live taping of the Savage Lovecast on Valentine's Day, February 14th at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon. Go to portlandmercury.com slash savagelovelive for tickets. It's going to be a good show. Rachel Lark is going to join us and sing some brand new songs. Come to the live show February 14th, Revolution Hall. And remember, of course, to fuck first. Also, coming up, Hump, its big national tour, kicks off January 28th through the 30th at the Victoria Theater in San Francisco for tickets to the world's best short 
Form Porn Film Festival. Go to humptour.com. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Dr. Rob Garofalo on Twitter at Dr. Rob Garofalo. Speaking of Twitter, Andy Delancey tweets, Savage Love podcasts are getting me through an awful drive through the middle of nowhere, Florida. I feel your pain, Andy, and thank you. Uh, I'm glad the podcast could help. And I should thank the podcast that helped me get through a really long drive through the middle of nowhere, Utah, last month. Risk, TED Radio Hour, Stuff You Missed in History Class, Death, Sex, and Money, and The Moth, some of my favorite podcasts. Check them out. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me, and Tech said the actor's youth, and Nancy, we will all be back at you with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. 